Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Lane. I'm the president of Liftport Group. We've been doing these shows for about four months now. Our focus is on that intersection, that, that kind of merging point between space, always space, but infrastructure development, national policy, the money and finance of space, current events, the, the movers and spacers that are building this future for us out, out into space. We've had some terrific guests so far. I really want to say thanks to, to all those folks. And we have some great folks lined up. We've got Matthew Travis coming in uh, next week on Monday. He's a pretty fascinating guy. His background is he was in a business plan competition that my friends at the space uh, Center for Space Commerce and Finance hosted. And he went from business plan competition to starting that business to building that business and actually being venture funded with, I think, 35 or 40 employees now. So pretty remarkable success story for him. You know, the... Uh, the world has an awful lot of rocket companies. So the assumption is, and we heard it from uh, Rick Tomlinson just yesterday on our Red Plant Live Mars Society show that we did yesterday. You know, his assumption is there's over 160 rocket companies of one kind or another, one flavor or another, and that only 20 of them will make it. I actually think his numbers are quite a bit wrong, uh, but I um, don't want to don't want to come start an argument with our guest. Um, that was uh, that was on Ash and Zest's show yesterday, Red Plant Live. So definitely check that out from yesterday. But Matthew's going to come in and talk about why his company is going to be one of the ones left standing. So that's coming up. We've got um, uh, Dr. Namrata Goswami coming in in about a week and a half. I think we've got two others booked, but I'm kind of drawing a blank on who they are. We've got a bunch in the works. Uh, Peter Gerritsen, we're going to talk about him quite a bit here in a moment. With that, uh, I think that's kind of all of our big announcements. We are going to push our big conference out. We were aiming for the end of March, and it probably is not going to come together that quickly. So that's a little frustrating, a little disappointment on, on, uh, on that front. But we think that the... Um, we think the show's definitely going to happen. It's probably going to be more likely May. We're looking at maybe the end of May. Uh, take a look at the daregreatly.space website for, uh, for updates on that. But we're looking at the end of May. I think that's going to work. And, and that is going to be a two-day conference with tremendous content in there. Uh, it's going to be focused on the money of space and the business and hardware of space. We're using the... Seraphim Capital uh, Space Economy Roadmap. And that's pretty important. Like that, that's got all of the big companies uh, in the sector and we're going to be bringing in a bunch of them together. So that should be super fun. We're very excited about that. But because of that change, we did decide we're going to postpone for a little while. We've got the Mars Society's Red Planet Live show coming up on a monthly basis now. I was hoping to have some good news for y'all this this morning. I don't, I can't quite share it yet. So we're waiting to get some answers uh, with a new client, but that could be really exciting. We're looking forward to to them as a uh, to this organization as being a regular contributor, maybe weekly, probably weekly. So fingers crossed about that. That would be another. Terrific space-focused show. 
we'll get into those details once we actually have the paperwork to back it up. So uh, just fingers crossed until until then. We've got a couple other projects in the works. So that's been pretty pretty fun. Uh, we're submitting into a, the Small Business Administration for a project here uh, on Thursday. So busy week. It's, uh, it's a busy week for our team. So thanks a lot, everybody, for being a part of that. And with that, we're going to kind of get into the bulk of the show. I've got some space policy elements that we're going to do. Everybody who watches the show knows that we tackle space policy in the beginning of our show. We've got our guest. We'll have him join us in about five minutes, but I want to showcase a couple documents that have come across my desk this week. Not related to our guest. We'll bring in uh, we'll bring in Arun Kumar here in just a moment. But quick things to give you highlights for news. Let me do a quick screen share here. You've all heard me talk about Starship Singularity for more than more than a year and a half now. My friend Peter Gerritsen, retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, he was pretty instrumental in the creation of U.S. Space Force. In the background, he was in the background of the creation of U.S. Space Force. He was pretty instrumental in the development of space-based solar power, involved with the Air Force Research Lab's efforts. And he's now at the American Foreign Policy Council. So this document, he literally posted it an hour ago. So I haven't even had a chance to uh, to take a look at myself. I'll post the link to it. But this is his perspective on what's going to happen. I've been calling it the Starship Singularity for about two years now. It is, it's fascinating. The graphics are fascinating. I don't want to you know, claim that I've read it because I haven't, but, but Pete and I have been talking about this for two years. So I'm just going to post this link. You can grab it for yourself. We're going to get Pete on our show here pretty soon. So just kind of stand by for that. Here's the link that it came from. He just posted this just an hour ago. He sent me like five, five text messages. Uh, about it so but I had to prep for the show so I haven't had a chance to actually get out there and uh, and show that so here's the links and here is the paper another thing that just came out uh, just two weeks ago is from the White House what kinds of technologies is America focusing on and why should it focus on them so here's the announcement from the White House. We follow national policy of the U.S. pretty closely because the stuff that happens at the Office of Science and Technology and a bunch of other organizations, that has ripple effects into you know, the rest of the field. And so here is the document that goes along with that press release. I want to highlight that first, all the members of this document goes to it's assigned to the department of agriculture department of defense department of commerce department of energy it's assigned to these organizations i always find it interesting that nasa is called out separately because the department of commerce controls nasa i think it's interesting how they how they highlight that the key technologies there's a bunch of language in here that's worth reading but these are the key technologies, space right here. That's an alphabetical list. I would, at first, I was concerned that space was being ignored, but it's an alphabetical list, so not ignored. A bunch of stuff you'd expect, advanced computing. And then if you scan into the list, these are the things that the administration is focusing on. 
And I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone, but it is really important to kind of point these things out. I think this is in-space propulsion. I don't think this is launcher technology. Everybody in our field knows that PNT is critical life or death in space and on the ground. No surprise to entry, descent, and landing. I think cryogenic fluid management might surprise some people. Commoditized uh, satellite buses might surprise some people. Those are things that I'm really happy to see the administration paying attention to. And with that, I'm going to stop kind of the policy section here and we're going to bring in we're going to bring in our guests so just a moment here hey hi hi michael thanks for having me of course let me uh let me read off your bio here because it's pretty cool stuff arun has a background in aerospace engineering and has an mba he has been an analyst for a decade now covering aerospace defense and security verticals besides other markets such as construction retail and heavy machinery he has led the development of data analytics solutions for space market participants and has been tracking the space sector since 2013, which we're going to come back to that, 2013. Uh, he has supported government and commercial agencies with their financial decision-making with respect to market expansion and new product development objectives. He is currently working as a principal analyst with Aerospace and Defense Unit at BIS Research a consulting firm specializing in AI-based analytics for businesses across markets. I'm really happy to have you here. We talked back in December. It was just a fascinating conversation. So first, I want to just say thank you for being on this. You're, it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock in the morning for you? It's 6.45 a.m. 6.45 a.m. Well, thank you for being up quite so early. It is just after 5 in the evening for me. So we're on, we're on different parts of the world here. So thank you, for, thank you for coming on. I want to jump into your background. You know, how we do this is we talk about background first, how you got into this field, how you're doing what you're doing, what was the path that you took really from the beginning? Um, it's really important to know this sector, people get into the sector from a lot of different backgrounds, perspectives, uh, visions. Tell me about your path. Sure. My uh, undergraduate, I did you know, aerospace engineering, and then I did my MBA at Mississippi State. And while I was there, I was also working as a research assistant on uh, small satellite projects. And that's where I got introduced to space. But when I returned home, my initial job was senior associate, a business consultant with a small consulting firm. And that was a non-space role. And that's when I was covering uh, construction, retail, and heavy machinery manufacturing. So I was helping companies do their quality audits and so on, both internal audits, financial and non-financial, and process consulting as such. And then I joined uh, Frost & Sullivan as a defense analyst. That was my entry into the aerospace and defense domain, so to speak. Then, you know, I joined as a defense analyst. So the first markets that I started tracking was defense. And then I moved across, you know, aviation, commercial, aerospace, security verticals, and so on. And uh, I worked with Frost & Sullivan for about eight years. And then last year in January, uh, I joined BIS Research as a principal analyst. Over the past decade, uh, I have been covering these aerospace defense and security verticals. That's cool about kind of your more recent stuff, but I want to go back in time further. You know, were you interested in space when you were at Mississippi State? Is that mm -hmm. is that Ole Miss yeah. or is that a different school? Uh, Mississippi State University, Starkville, Mississippi, not Ole Miss. So when you, when you were back there, 
Well, what what brought you to what brought you to uh, Mississippi in the first place? It was that uh, research assistant position. I got an assistantship there, so I joined there. And at that time, uh, Mississippi State University had a program in collaboration with uh, Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. Uh, it's now part of Airbus. At this point, it was SSTL back then, and then there was this joint project and uh, we were investigating options for a lunar mission and so on and as part of that within uh, mississippi state they were setting up a small satellite lab small satellite was introduced into the aerospace program there and i was part of the research assistant team which would set up the lab and help the students and we would conduct those classes and the projects and the tests and so on. So it was more of CubeSat testing and integration activity. And, you know, there was SSTL's participation from the industry side as well. So they would come there and they would have workshops and we would sit with them, learn from them, and then we would teach and we would be working with the students. And uh, so that was uh, when I got introduced the space side of things. Uh, 15, a little over 15 years ago. I mean, really, yeah. that's yeah. pretty new. I mean, or, or, sorry, that, that's pretty, because the field has changed so much, most yeah. people are getting into it for the first time in the last two to five years. So 15 years ago is, is actually kind of, you're kind of one of the old dogs in the field. Just because the cube back well. then was slightly bigger. Just to give a perspective, the cube set today is this big, but it was the size of a youth soccer ball, slightly bigger. It, it was still called the cube set, but a slightly larger cube set. The stack was still the same, but it was inside a little box and, you know, the solar panels on the side. We would do yeah. that testing with halogen lamp. And if someone got an efficiency of 17%, then we would all huddle up and ask what went wrong. For everybody who doesn't have the history, um, the CubeSat standard came out of California. I think it was uh, uh, Cal Poly, if I remember right. Maybe in San Diego also. That standard came, it's now a standard that we all take for granted. It was pretty new when you were working on it. I think it's about a 22-year-old standard. I think it came out in 2001. So if you were working on it in 2007, 2008, that was brand new technology. Nobody, nobody knew what to do with that. So were you kind of puzzled by it when it first came online or... Were you comfortable with it right from the beginning? I don't think we were comfortable with it in any way, but you know, we had the equipment and the manual. So it was basically three of us trying to figure out which one goes where and we would have that manual and the manual would say something and we would spend the next hour looking for that within the where is that thing, where does that thing go? But I would be holding one wire, okay, this needs to go somewhere, <laughs> where would that one? And then, uh, so it was more trial and error. So, you know, the initial kit that we got trained on, we basically destroyed it <laughs> in the process of learning. But then that was the overall experience that putting that thing together and watch that thing come to life right in front of you and then, you know, we would just hang it uh, from a pendulum style contraption and then you know that is where okay, we would be trying all the attitude control and everything and you know it would be connected to our computers and uh, we would have this small graphic interface where we would have to do every movement separately you know it's not a automated program and then we see that thing happen and then okay so this is how it is happening and we go you're, through that one round you're using a gravity simulation table which is basically if i can do it with my hands it kind of looks like this where there's a platform and a wall 
and then it's suspended yes. and moved as if it was as if it was a low gravity zero gravity mm -hmm. rocket. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. That was brand new tech then too. Like we did stuff like that when we went to the moon, where we'd have astronauts like attached to walls and all these big contraptions. But I mean, you know, the sophistication of modeling software and you know, real world experience to back up the simulations, to back up the models, the physical models. And we've come a whole long ways since then. So that must have been pretty fun to pioneer that. And we would parallelly have the mission design also going on. Uh, at one end, we'll be working on, uh, it used to be called Satellite Toolkit. I'm not sure how many remember yeah. that old name. I think they call it Systems Toolkit, or I think it's part of ANSYS. I, I really don't know. ANSYS, I think it. ANSYS bought, like, yeah, yeah. Know, they, they yeah. gobbled up a whole bunch of companies. Yeah, like yeah. it used to be Satellite toolkit and it would only do satellite there wasn't that uav module at that time it was only uh, stk they had given us uh, that university student license at that time itself we would use that and then you know there would be different missions that will be uh, designing on top of it and then just to probe our curiosities professors would give a very specific mission design and say okay these are the three ground stations that need to see the satellite at this point go see what the mission does and then that would be like a highly elliptical Molnaya orbit and then we would do that really quickly but then when we get the ground track data out that's when we would notice that right about apogee you know when it is at its peak uh, at the highest point it will have a view towards russia as well and then you'd say okay this mission for some reason is designed such that when it is at a, the high, highest end it can you know there is some ground station at russia that can view this as well so it has to be the other way around and we would we would have jokes about it i was pretty nice i used the uh, stk the satellite toolkit mm -hmm. it was kind of a de facto standard in the early days i used it at isu uh, 2008 international space university back in 2008 it was so clunky and i know like this much about orbital mechanics like that, I, I know almost nothing about orbital mechanics, but everything that I do know, I learned from this, the satellite toolkit SDK. So it, it's pretty, it was a pioneering tool, right? I mean, we kind of take that stuff for granted now, but without it, we couldn't have evolved that CubeSat standard. So really it wasn't, it wasn't a plan for you to get into space. You just happened to be at the right time, at the right place. Yeah that have the technology because that that stuff was not out in the world at yeah. most schools. It was, it, it, a, was, just was getting started. it was just getting started. I didn't actually think this is how naive I was back then. I did not think that the CubeSat standard was going to matter at all. Like it felt like yeah. it was just an academic, it was a great way to get your papers published, but it wasn't going to have any real world impact. And that perception stayed for quite a while, while I was sort of, as an analyst with, uh, in my earlier role at Frost and Sullivan, I, I remember one of the conversations with a scientist, you know, who has spent his entire career uh, working on satellites and most part of it on small satellites. And he was, you know, he was so inside, deep inside the technology. He was saying, Arun, small satellites haven't succeeded commercially. I don't think they will ever, ever come out commercially. But when he was making that point, 
planet alone had close to 150 satellites in orbit and i was trying to know that's that's not the world you are in right now things have changed and you know from 2013 onwards it, it was one quick fast forward <laughs> you know what, what would otherwise be a 25 year timeline like you yeah. know that entire change happened in a five year timeline <laughs> yeah it did it happened in five years it was amazing to watch at the same time your professor was saying no big deal i was talking to I won't name him because people would know him, but a three-star general at the Pentagon, Space Force wasn't there yet, so it was an Air Force general in charge of space, and I asked him two questions, one focused on the moon and one focused on on small sats, and his comment about small sats was it's debris. It's just one more thing I have to avoid and it's one thing I have to track and avoid. So don't talk to me about small sats and then I talked to him about the moon and he's like you know my sphere of influence is the earth and that much more right like here's the earth and this is how much I'm willing to pay attention to and you're talking about you know from here to the moon he's like no I'm not even going to entertain that conversation I'm just not going to It was it was pretty frustrating because those are the days when I was shifting away from the earth elevator to focus on the lunar elevator and I really wanted uh I wanted the air force to pay attention and they were definitely not and and this is a general that had three stars seniority and his opinion mattered and his opinion was small sats are debris and we're not paying attention to the moon that was 2000 9 or 10 a lot has changed a lot has changed so that's yeah. really cool i'm 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 excited about your history i uh mm-hmm. i think this stuff is i think this stuff is important so you got into space by accident had you been interested in space prior to that no no not really as no. more an airplane guy i was a nerd in high school for sure i was aware of space and i would skip high school to go watch space shuttles launch and land on television but it didn't it didn't become a career until i don't know it's 31 32 time frame so it's been my whole life since then no i i wouldn't i got into it pretty early but i wasn't as young as you were to get into it so good for you cool i'm going to po- post your uh your linkedin profile here if anybody wants to reach out to you But let's let's kind of talk about what you're doing now. Let's talk about Frost and Sullivan for a second. For those that don't know uh and and you're going to tell more about it, but they were one of the very first folks as actual analysts in the sector, in the space sector. Um there's Bryce, Bryce had a different name at the time. I forgot what their earlier name was. Space Capital's been watching it. and maybe there's maybe there's four or five others the space space foundation of course has their kind of big document that they post every year there's a couple others euroconsult and i'm certain that astrolytical does some so I'm, there's a few of them out there but very few have got 10 years worth of of tracking in history so talk a little bit about frost 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 and Sullivan before we started getting to BIS. I joined Frost as a defense analyst and I was the only analyst 
when we relaunched the space program back in 2014-15. You know, it was me, uh, you know, the very first topic that was given to me was military SATCOM. And then I was, you know, I would grab every opportunity in team meetings to say, hey, small satellites, let's do something on small satellites. The small satellite market is growing. And no one would uh, even consider giving me a vocal rejection. They would just move on. <laughs> no one would call that. And then I kept asking about it. And at one point, my manager at that time, he said, credits to Steven web for making it possible he said arun you have been talking about small satellites so much and there's nothing that we are observing in the market but you seem to be curious about it go ahead take 120 hours do a small study on it let's see what the clients feel about it and you know we can talk further if, if that grabs i titled it assessment of the small satellite market and that study got into the top 100 downloads of that year and that that's what got the attention of the team internally and they said okay so this thing is catching attention let's dive deeper but, but the moment we got into the small satellite market we realized okay earth observation communication very different animals and you know we need to treat them separately because the application the way the markets operate you know one earth observation many companies smaller constellations communication domain fewer companies really large constellations uh, and at that time that type of a constellation itself was considered practically impossible it was a theory on paper that people would not even consider joking about you know but right now starlink service is active that's a different story but back then it was still fantasy so we would cover that one by one and at that time it was just me the, i was the first analyst there contributing to the space program there and then we slowly grew expanded our team decided to establish that niche in the small satellite market because we were starting really really fresh and then there are you know you said you know euro consult and there, there are many other research groups who already have a broader and a stronger footprint in the domain so we wanted to you know have a small blue ocean for ourselves and there i was saying you know let's do the small satellite the new space market at that time the word new space would still be i still write it that way <laughs> not many people agree with me new space is one word with a capital s in between so i still write it that way but not very so in, in, in <laughs> it's two words new and space wait, wait, wait just a second so literally last night last night's program our client the mars society had had their show the red planet live our show last night had rick tomlinson Rick Tomlinson is literally actually the human being who invented the phrase new space at the uh, Space Frontier Foundation. He wanted to differentiate old space, boring space, careful space of like Boeing and Lockheed and NASA and all the all, 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 all the contractors. And he wanted to like, oh, let's be cool. Let's be new. Let's be sexy and talk about new space. And and you know that was super effective back in 2004 2005 two decades ago i do not think it's a useful phrase anymore i think it i think it actually muddies the water a lot and i think it it's pretty confusing i like the phrase risk space versus safe space right so that let's say boeing working on the International Space Station, that's a contract they can keep cashing from NASA over and over and over. And they have for 20 years, it's gotta be worth $30 billion, maybe $40 billion over that time frame. That's pretty safe space. On the other side, you've got SpaceX and Blue 
that are self-funding rockets that may or may not have clients, may or may not succeed, may or may not have missions. And that's about as risky as you can get. Liftport falls in the risk space. Most of the companies in the sector fall into that category. So I don't think new space is a term that's useful anymore because I don't think it tells the whole story very well. But I also don't like the uh, the semantics of risk space and safe space. One, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Two, it's it doesn't it doesn't really fully tell the story. So it hasn't really picked up any traction, but I, I don't think new space does the job anymore. I think it's, I mean, you can, you can remember with the days when people were companies.coms, right? Like there's no, nobody had, nobody has a dot-com company anymore. That, that term doesn't have any value. Mm-hmm. I think that new space is the, in the same boat. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So what happened back then was, you know, even in 2013, 2015 timeline, uh, even internally, when I would speak with my sales colleagues and so on, they'd say, Arun, nobody's interested in science projects. That's what they would call it. So, you know, all of these were startups where they might have registered as a business, but the management team would essentially be the industry principals, the very founders, you know, would be the tech developers. And, you know, it, it wasn't a proper business setup where the R&D would be a separate team. They will be in charge of product development. And that's a professional management team who would handle the corporate activities and they would be doing the front end. And, you know, it wasn't that setup. Three to five engineers together, like they are everything. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they, they, they are the manufacturing plant. They are the management. They are everything. And then maybe they have like 253. 300k of seed money that they brought in and that's about it and then there was a bunch of these happening and they were being stereotyped as science projects that no one cares about and i think at that time the term new space of course new space really took them forward it 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 gave them a collective identity it separated them from the crowd i don't remember anyone using old space as to segregate the rest of the space industry this group was you know really wanting to be part of the larger space industry they don't they didn't want to create an ecosystem for themselves they have now but back then they wanted to be part of the space community but they were just discarded as you know science projects that no one uh, cared about and then slowly as they started establishing their success you know they started putting tech demonstration satellites and you know their capability is you know i know of a small satellite operator a nano satellite operator who has delivered or enabled financial transactions downstream and you know that's narrowband service so we, we are talking shoebox style size satellites delivering these capabilities in two days time so this was completely unheard of and no one would even imagine but we you know so many things have been made possible and i think that led to this number of companies growing and then cheaper manufacturing that enabled you know many other silicon valley startups you know their core ip was downstream they did not have the satellite expertise and then right now they have space as a service there are companies who would design build launch and operate on anyone's behalf and you would get your data in api format and you can focus on your downstream analytic solutions and so on without satellite expertise can now become or evolve into space companies they can have their payloads in orbit that's very much possible so i think the word new space gave them that identity that eventually they had to have some identity to catch the attention of the investors and i I think the new space economy or the new space identity helped them achieve that but there are companies with whom when i speak these days i tell them okay some years back i used to put you under the 
innovative startup section on the slide that I do, but these days I don't put your name there because you are not a startup anymore. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, great, great momentary segue. I'm going to just jump in for a second because you know you're talking about space as a service now. This is the biggest contract that I'm aware of. It happened today, today, and it's a fascinating story about a startup that is basically providing building satellites as a contract for other organizations. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to post that in the link, but that's exactly right. That there is very speedy maturity in this industry and it's happening right before our eyes. So let's talk about, uh, we have about 20 minutes left. Let's talk about BIS. Uh, let's talk about what you're doing there. If you want to talk about the spreadsheet that you sent over, I'm happy to do that. I've got it posted. Tell me about BIS and what you're working on now. I know you, let me, let me have a caveat in there. I know that you can't tell about current clients and current research because those people pay for that knowledge. But what are you able to share that, uh, that our community would be interested in? So uh, I work as a principal analyst within the aerospace and defense unit at BIS Research. I am in charge of the market sizing, forecasting, estimations, research planning, and management, and so on. Now, we have uh, two different streams. One is our syndicated reports, which is basically we pick up many different topics from each vertical, and then we track those markets, we write and publish reports about them, largely on existing markets, but we do have a special focus on emerging markets, you know, things that we expect to happen in the coming years. For example, we recently published a study in in-orbit refueling services. The capability is still quite new. You know, of course, there has been a few life extension missions that have happened, non-cooperative to a large extent. But, you know, we realized that as the satellite docking systems and the refueling ports become standardized in the manufacturing domain, in-orbit refueling will be an active kicking market. So we have, you know, we do publish reports on emerging markets and we make it a point to cover them before they come into existence. And, you know, we did publish one on space situational awareness. But, uh, but apart from it, we also cover the existing markets, you know, the launch vehicle industry, uh, you know, who's launching how many rockets and who's manufacturing how many over the year so the 140 to 160 launch vehicles you know across small medium heavy super heavy and so on and then you know we have a satellite manufacturing uh, database you know which sits on what we call as the satellite launch forecast which we basically track all the launches and then at any given time we would have a view of who's going to launch how many satellites over the next 10 years and then that is the starting point for pretty much all satellite-based studies. So, you know, if any client wants, has a query, you know, if they make a product, let's say a reaction wheel for a 200 kilogram or, you know, that microsatellite segment, if they, you know, if anyone has a query such as, okay, what's the demand for this component in the earth observation domain in that 200 to 300 kg satellites in the Europe region, we would have that data ready. That Those databases that we maintain, that is the starting point for pretty much all the market investigations that we do. But we are also now evolving a AI-based platform. We are calling it Insight Monk, where we are, uh, you know, it is essentially artificial intelligence-based refined search for our clients. You know, going away from Google, you know, you go to Google, you type, you have a whole lot of information at you, and you have to parse through it. But, uh, you know, our clients are very specific niche. They are looking for very specific publications of a certain type. So we have built the system that would do it on their behalf. Once they are on the platform and they do that search, they will have it in three segments. One, here's what public domain reports in this topic. And here are the reports that we have published. And here are other resources that you can go 
go through and so on and that is all we are also expecting that platform to evolve as a professional social network so to speak where they can post a question and anyone can answer we would also be watching those questions and you know if someone has a question on healthcare the healthcare analyst team uh, would jump in and contribute and anyone else you know we have industry experts who are part of insight monk at this point and they would also join in and they can also chip in so you know our objective is to enable industry experts engage with their peers while also having access to relevant information uh, besides our reports and that's what we are trying we are trying to create that ecosystem for uh, you know effective communication between relevant industry experts at this point in time everything is becoming cross functional so you know everyone is trying to do everything everything is coming to that place so the need for interacting with relevant professionals across domains is growing and we believe our insight monk platform will help in that regard so that's what we do at BIS research tell me a little bit about your clients because you told me when we were on the phone back in december something that really surprised me i'm not going to i'm not going to lead with that but mm -hmm. uh, tell me who your clients are who's buying this data and what do they what decisions are they making based on the data we have commercial and uh, government agencies as our client most of them are commercial companies if we take the space industry for example space market participants are the clients most of our uh, output you know when we, when we talk about syndicated reports that we publish what they contain is the demand assessment you know how much of a certain product is going to be taken up over the timeline and how does that look like in dollar form and you know how does that demand vary across different product segments and across regions and the segmentation is really relevant for the market you know if you take in orbit servicing market the regional segmentation is pretty much insignificant because that's in space but that the segmentation is more on the mass class wise you know how many earth observation satellites might need it how many communication satellites might need it and so on so relevant things. so basic questions that our clients usually have when they have a product they want to understand okay what's the demand for this product looking like where are our customers who has the money and how is this demand expected to grow so they will so they they keep procuring these syndicated reports in an ongoing basis because we keep updating it the primary purpose they use it for is to keep track of the demand for their product and to identify new customers in some cases you know and then apart from the syndicated reports we also do custom deep dive projects which is where clients would have hey here's a product that we are planning to develop and you know we are trying to go after you know this is the definition of our target audience can you help us find them and then we do that market survey and we build that database for them okay here are the companies this is their portfolio this is what they do and based on your definition of your product this is your larger audience and this group is your core audience you know who will who will be more curious to know about this technology because they they have a higher likelihood of you know using this technology they will have the need for this technology before anyone else and then we hand it over to them so it, it's it's more demand assessment in some cases it would also be a supply assessment they would want to understand the competitive landscape who's doing who and then you know that's more of a ecosystem assessment so to speak and then okay in each of these segments these are the industry participants and this is their portfolio and so on but we do that we also help them with technological assessments in some cases they would say we have a certain technology that we are already delivering to our customers we want to understand 
how uh, the uptake of this technology will vary moving forward it's not it's not tangible in terms of number of products it's how this technology will be applied and and what use cases where it will be used moving forward in that case it's a tech assessment a qualitative assessment so we start our investigation by looking into the patents you know what are the most recent patents filed historically what areas or what versions of the technology patents have been filed what does that patent landscape tell us you know where is this technology headed and then we do a market survey and understand okay here's what because patent is a more reflection of the r&d side of activities but then when we speak with the industry participants we get a feel of okay what's happening on the ground right now and and you know what is the gap so where is this headed when will some of these patents actually materialize into fully operable solutions and which type of patents are more likely to succeed and which of those industry participants who are you know going to be the early adopters and so on so we do that sort of assessment as well so those would be deep dive very specific you know customer specific uh, requirements that we do besides uh, this when you okay so there's kind of two kinds of research there's custom research and then there's kind of public research so you'll do this for a client who has a particular problem particular requirement and then this one you'll take this information and make some elements available to the public. Is that, that is, do I understand yeah. your business model? Yeah. Okay. So if I wanted, and I'm just going to use myself as an example for Liftport, if we were, if we wanted to have an understanding of cargo going to the moon, which as far as I know, there is not a document like that. I've looked, we could contract BIS to go look for that. And then some of that information, we would get first access because we commissioned it, but then some of it would be made available to public reports. That's that's kind of how you work, correct? We have our internal databases in that regard. So, you know, you, you refer to the lunar mission. So, you know, we have a database, which we call as the deep space mission database, about 90, 95 missions we have already documented and we are looking into that. For that particular query that you just defined, we would that would be the starting point of it. So the data that we have within our database, yes, that we use for pretty much all the research activities that we do but then when we develop a deliverable specifically for you and if it is a custom project then you know we would obviously be maintain that as a confidential document what you get is what you alone get but then right. the base information is already coming from public domain that belongs to everyone you know what are the lunar missions the artemis program the different phases of it how we interpret it uh, you know so for that query we would conduct you know very specific discussions with industry stakeholders that's when we will confirm okay so this is what is likely to happen and this is what they are going to do and and you know and then we would finalize on okay so much of hardware is going to be needed the initial orbiter missions not so much but once they start building the station there and once they have a few soft landings done you know they are going to have infrastructure on the surface then they are going to do back and forth uh, lander back and forth missions there and at that time they will need a lot of supplies and if something is identified uniquely and then you know that would speed up the process they might want to you know if they find some material which is which has more value here then there would be a need for bringing it back here and then that space infrastructure would also be kicking in and so what you would get in the end would be would, would be you it, it will be exclusively for you but then the base data that we take from the database that is something that we consider our core ip and then that sure. is the common yeah yeah absolutely you did you did the work you you've got use for it again trying to be cognizant of time we've got about five minutes left the thing that surprised me when you talked about 
you know, you've got government customers and you've got a lot of, you know, industry clients, you know, that report that I just th theoretically came up with, what's the range of a price tag for that, you know, as, you know, somebody were to be a client and then what would be the, the private report and then the public report price tags? What, what would that look like for the industry? Our syndicated reports, they usually fall in the five to six thousand dollar range five to five zero if i remember it correctly but and that's us dollars right yeah yeah US. that's the syndicated reports but when it comes to custom reports uh, it all comes down to how much effort estimation so uh, here's how the process works so we would have a preliminary discussion where we will capture the requirement and we will try to understand okay what sort of information are you looking for we would huddle up internally and then we would decide what we would do to actually compile that information and you know what needs to be done you know in some cases it would be entirely primary based in which case we would have to do like 20 30 interviews you know from that standpoint one you know easily for each interview anywhere between five to six hours of effort goes in over the calendar it does spread over two months because scheduling so many interviews does take time but in some cases not so much you know we could do with 10 15 interviews but then it's more of collecting a lot of secondary information from public domain sources so how much it how much we, we do an effort assessment and then we come down to okay how many days it is going to take us to do that and then that's what it usually gets built so roughly we would say 400 to 450 dollars per analyst today uh, okay. to give you a feel of it so if the effort comes down to 20 working days you know you can you can do the math sure. at your end 400 to 450 dollars a day so that's, so that's the thing that made me kind of a light bulb go off in my head whether it's five or ten thousand dollars for original research or whether it's five thousand dollars for supporting research you've got venture capitalists that are going out there writing $500,000 checks, million dollar checks, $5 million checks, and they're not your core clients. So it makes me wonder, like if I was writing half million dollar or million dollar checks to spend 5,000 to $15,000 to just have somebody else check my math, evaluate my math. You'd say it takes two months to do a report, maybe three months to do a report. Okay, maybe they're worried about speed, but at the same time, like me, if I'm writing a million dollar check, I'm gonna do my homework. So that was really surprising to me that that was not one of your, your core, core clients was the VC community. And I know that the VC community is small and you know, we can probably name the top 10 space VCs together, but there are hundreds, thousand, there's, there's 15, 1800 space companies being tracked by space capital and, and, and most of them do not have your deep knowledge of space, right? So they're, they're writing checks based on guesswork. That's all I can come up with. So anyway, I, I don't want to like belabor that, but it was a really big surprise to me when I, when I was talking mm -hmm. earlier. I think we need to put that in perspective. I agree with you, but our presumption is they might not be part of our core clients, but for some of our competitors, they might be. And this is our presumption. So, you know, I'm, you know, they, they, they need to have that data from somewhere. If not from us, it has to be from our competitors at least. But what we have, what I have noticed is larger investment groups, they have a standard practice of collecting this in market information in a cyclical basis. You know, I have helped agencies like, you know, Morgan Stanley uh, and JP Morgan and so on. They would come up with, you know, they would have really large funds 
to look into and say hey we are considering an investment in and this is the domain what's the landscape looking like and what are the key top things you know i have delivered in my earlier roles but they do it in a cyclic basis but when we come down to the small scale investors they do their homework but i presume some of it they do it themselves or at least my presumption is that they are not having a very broad capture of that data so oftentimes right. these really you know this is where the big difference is and we are trying to educate the new space crowd as such you know a lot of these founders they know the market they have developed the technology but then they don't have the same insight or perspective that we right. third party analysts have and right. oftentimes they have feel okay i developed this product i know my customer i'm speaking with the customer i don't need a middleman to tell me what the demand is going to look like that's not how this is understood but once that startup becomes an established corporation or you know really large aerospace organizations they know how we operate and and they have a specific strategy team that does it and they have a market intelligence team who does what we do and then they buy our reports to validate their activities and and uh, and and i know that all our clients who buy our reports they do buy reports from our competitors as well so you know so there are companies who buy all the reports in the market and then right. they look at okay because every report you know the numbers mean nothing you know without the story behind you could have a 40 billion number i could have a 4 billion number both could be right with very different story behind right uh, uh, both needs to be brought in yeah and the large corporations they have uh, because they have it all comes down to how they structure their market intelligence activities is it going to be one person just looking on one report and then making a decision or is it a team which continuously tracks it because once it becomes an elaborate process that's where the need for multiple data input comes in and that's where we chip in so until right. at, until that moment, right now we are trying to educate the new space crowd as well hey this is what you can do we can help you do this uh, often times we do what we get as a response is hey we know our customers it's it's a small world they operate in and and for that reason they tend to presume that's the only world they are going to operate in you know but that's not reality they are going to grow there is going to be competition there are things are going to change there are some startups which have that you know experienced stakeholders who in their previous roles have interacted with analysts they know what we do and they know the importance of this validation activity that needs to happen the, it is the younger founders uh, who are still yet to get on the same page but what we have noticed is as as the company grows eventually they will become our clients with that we're going to close it off arun thank you very much for being a part of our show i'm looking forward to continuing our conversation i don't know if you know how we got connected i got an email from one of your associates to uh and i got connected via linkedin i think and then you asked that i'd be a part of one of your interviews for one of your segments one of your research projects which is overdue i haven't actually done that yet uh happy to do that you know it's kind of amazing how the serendipity of the world and the internet kind of connects people that wouldn't meet otherwise and and so i'm really glad that that we started talking back in december so uh let's keep this conversation going as we know more about our conference probably going to be at the end of may i'll definitely invite you to be a part of that Thanks a lot Arun have a have a well I was about to say have a good night but you're starting your day so you have a good day I'm going to close yeah. off for the night yeah okay. sure sure thanks Michael thanks for having me yes our relationship will continue let's stay in touch have a good night or right, have a good morning bye 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 bye